A National Airlines flight is flying a leg from Houston to Las Vegas when an explosion shakes the cabin. What caused this flight to shake and need to make an emergency landing? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm Heather. Hey! Hey, Heather's, Heather's back. We need to just have a moment of silence for editing, and all we could hear was the remix. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Anyways. We have a new patron. We have week. a new patron. We do have a new patron. A Canadian patron. Canada. 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 A person from Canada. Canadian land. So thank you to Jane. Thanks, Jane. You spell your name interestingly. I was immediately like, oh, crap. I've talked so much crap about Canada. <laughs> As of late. I actually, I appreciate Canada. I appreciate Canadians. I just. I really hope you do. <laughs> I, yeah. I have, Canada is the reason I've, we can travel places. So. Yes. Thanks, Canada. <laughs> so anyways. Anyway, so this episode comes out on Halloween. Halloween. This Happy Halloween. Halloween. This, this is Halloween. 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 We're not playing that for the concert. <laughs> um. So happy spoopy day. Happy have, spoopy day. Have a spoopy day. That, that's what I got. I don't, I don't have anything particularly to go just, along with that. We just recorded yesterday. We we're recording this very in advance because we're going on vacation. And we still, as of five days before we leave... Technically, yep. have, have no, no idea, idea where, where we're going. We're going. <laughs> Technically, yes. I have offered many a plan, but nobody seems to be saying, let's just do that and only that and leave from there. I expect you to do that. I can do that, and I have offered plenty of solutions. Let's go to Amsterdam. Okay. Can we just write that in stone? Okay. We'll keep an eye on it. Except you still want to go to Tokyo. I do. But Japan? But is there actual availability? <laughs> what? Yeah, I sent one today. You didn't see that? There's 4J2Y. That hasn't changed in like a week. Nobody's been competing on it. And it's to Haneda. Which is nice because it's right downtown. It's the good airport. We'll talk about more of that in the post episode anyways. Okay, well, do all the normal stuff. Newsletter. Yes. And other stuff. Yes. The, I hope new, the new newsletter comes out tomorrow, allegedly. Yes. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? I, I hope you're doing something fun for Halloween today. I hope. If this Halloween's is... not a Tuesday. I know. Yes, that's why our episode comes out on Halloween. I yes, know. it's not very fun to have Halloween on a Tuesday, I feel no, like. it's not. Ew, more, I work on Halloween. Ew. I mean, me too. <laughs> me, me too. Me too. See, you get to do fun stuff with the kids. Eh. I don't know about that. My advantage is it's the last day of the month, which means I am obligated to stop working at 3 p.m. because we cannot enter vouchers after that. Must be nice. Must be nice. That will be two days into the new schedule. Oh. How did your busy day go today? I didn't even get started. Okay, post-episode material. It's going to be a busy week. Oh, boy. Okay, well. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering National Airlines Flight 27. Thank you, once again, to Matt for recommending this. I thought it was Northwest. Nope. Nope. It's National Airlines. N-A, N-W, I can see the, the confusion. Yes. I'm pretty sure I accidentally put N-W in the October blooper. Not blooper reel. Uh, newsletter. Newsletter. But I understand. Whoops. It's okay. It happens. Nope. National Airlines Flight 27. This occurred on November 3rd of 1973. This was a hot minute ago. 
This was a Douglas DC-1010 with the tail number November 6-0 November Alpha. And it was also named Barbara. Because Why? I don't know. That's when they named airplanes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, National Airlines has changed a lot. Over the years, it's been a lot of different airlines over the years with a lot of different colors. This one in particular was a DC-10 with like yellow and orange and white and oh silver DC-10. colors. So it's candy corn colored? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of candy corn colored. That's a pretty good way to put it. That's the only relation this thing's even going to have to Halloween. And it's pretty close to Halloween. Three days after, yeah. Okay, so it's an anniversary episode, sort of, kind of. Yeah, sort of, yes. Unintentionally. Unintentionally. Yes. We do yes. a lot of those, actually. We're not the ones who make the schedule. <laughs> yes. An unintentional 50-year anniversary. Oh, So, anyway. The DC-1010 was the original version of the DC-10, and the only difference between that and, say, the 3040 series is it didn't have, well, I shouldn't say it's the only difference, but the main difference is it doesn't have a center wheel under the main fuel tank, which the 3040 series did. It had a very large center landing gear. Weird. This one did not, which the only reason they added that was so that it could carry a lot more weight to to go a further distance because they could put more fuel on board, more cargo, more people, yada, yada, yada. Otherwise, the airplane was basically the same in terms of size. So not vastly different. This was a flight from Miami to New Orleans to Houston to Las Vegas to San Francisco. We will be talking about the Houston to Las Vegas leg, which is actually the longest leg out of all of those. The captain for this flight was William Brooke, I think. What do you mean you think? B-R-O-O-C-K-E. Is that Brooke? Is that Brookie? Is that Brooke? Brock? Is that Brock? Yep. B-R-O-O-C-K-E. I understand. Please continue. (laughs) He was 54 years old. At the time, he had 21,853 hours total. Anytime the first digit. Is it two? Yeah. That's not 2,000 or 200. Yeah. Anytime it's a a five-digit beginning with a two is a lot. He's ranking up there in our our flight crews we've talked about. Can someone please make that spreadsheet? Yeah, I don't keep up with that anymore. Inquiring minds want to know. Yes. I don't even think he ranks in the top 10, though. We've talked about a lot more experience amongst quite a few flight crews. He had 801 hours on the DC-10. So, not new, but definitely not super experienced. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the DC-10 was new, newer. The first officer was Edward Saunders. He was 33 years old. He had 7,086 hours total, of which 445 were on the DC-10. So, still less than the captain, but still not a lot. The flight engineer was Golden Hanks. The first name was Golden. He was 55 years old, so one year older than the captain, being the oldest in the cockpit. He had 17,814 hours total, of which 1,252 were on the DC-10. So he, by far and away, had the most experience on the airplane, but was still second most experienced in the cockpit, with a very respectable number of hours. And actually, weirdly enough, he is the person I talk about the most in this episode. That, I feel like, never happens. No, that never happens. There are times that there's a flight engineer, we never get to know them at all. Like the last episode. (laughs) (laughs) Whereabouts, there was a flight engineer that I know absolutely nothing about. I actually completely forgot that there was a flight engineer last week. Yeah. This one has a flight engineer, and they are our protagonist. Oof. Sad day. Nah, it's alright. They live. Mm -hmm. That's good. Actually, I would think, I would consider them maybe the most competent in this incident. Although, I don't know, they were pretty, we'll talk about it. 
I completely, <laughs> I, I completely missed this. What year is this? 73. 73. Okay. 50 years ago. The flights to Houston were all normal. The flight to Las Vegas was to have 116 passengers and 12 crew, which, if you know anything about the DC-10, is nothing. That airplane is, like, not even a quarter full, probably. Well, maybe a third full. What's the capacity? DC-10, it's a wide body. Right there, thank you. Oh, look it up. 250 to 380. Yeah, this is 116. So, half to a third? It's probably about a third. National Airlines was a mostly domestic airline in the U.S., so it was probably a densely filled airplane. Gotcha. The flight departed Houston at 3.40 p.m. local time on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan to Las Vegas. The planned flight time was 2 hours and 49 minutes, with a cruising altitude of 39,000 feet. Pretty up there, actually. The takeoff and climb to cruise were normal. The aircraft reached its cruising speed of Mach 0.82, or about 257 knots indicated airspeed, which is pretty normal. Mind you, that's still almost 500 miles an hour on the ground. Actually, it's probably over 500 miles an hour on the ground. The autothrottle was disengaged, and the thrust was then set manually to maintain speed. At 4.40 p.m. local time, now Mountain Daylight Time, this is exactly two hours after takeoff, the flight was flying in the vicinity of Socorro, New Mexico, when the autothrottle was re-engaged and a target speed of 257 knots was set on the autothrottle. So they engaged it, but they engaged it at the same speed they were at. They just used the autothrottle for a moment. A flight engineer noted around this time that there seemed to be a strange indication from the N1 tachometers for the engines. So this is how it reads speed of the inner workings of the engines. The flight engineer then pulled the circuit breakers for the N1 tachometers, and the target speed was reduced by five knots. So he pulled all the circuit breakers for the N1 readings for all the engines. The captain then disconnected the auto throttle and set the thrust manually again, at which time he stated to the flight engineer that he was satisfied with the functioning of the engines. However, pretty much simultaneous to this, the crew heard and felt an explosion, and the aircraft began buffeting severely. The flight engineer noticed a fire warning indication light for the number three or the right wing engine, as well as various other system failures on his instruments, all happening kind of at once. He tried but was unsuccessful in moving the fuel shutoff handle for the number three engine, at which point he activated the firewall shutoff handle and discharged two fire extinguisher bottles into the number three engine, since it was indicating a fire. Also at this time, a rapid decompression was happening, and the flight engineer noticed this on his instruments. So he closed the outflow valves, which is, you know, it lets air out of the airplane, and activated the passenger oxygen mask release switch, which manually drops the oxygen masks to the passengers. Mm-hmm. How to induce panic 101. Uh-huh. <laughs> we'll get there, but I would say they were already well in a panic. The first officer who was in the passenger cabin at the time of the oh, explosion... I didn't know that. ...quickly returned to the cockpit to assist with the aircraft. When he opened the cockpit door, it was immediately apparent that something was very wrong, as the flight engineer saw smoke filling the passenger cabin. Immediately after this, the flight engineer noticed that all systems associated with the number three engine were seemingly failing. So the number three engine blew up. Yeah! You might be onto something! <laughs> <laughs> Attempts were made to restore electrical power from the right engine, which was driving most of the electricals to the cockpit, by the way. Keep that in mind later. Yes, but with no success. 
The crew immediately initiated an emergency descent once the decompression was noticed. Indications for the number one hydraulic and oil pressure systems were also low, which is not necessarily directly related to the number three engine. Not entirely not, but also... Not, 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 not. Right. (laughs) (laughs) They're also important. As UA-232 proved. Right. I had quite a few years later, but (laughs) you might remember that they are all kind of, unfortunately... Tied together. Connected. Tied together more than they should be. Yeah. That was then fixed. Yeah. What's redundancy? Nah. Nah. Who needs it? Who needs that? Nah, who needs it? out everybody. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they kind of, we'll put it this way, they kind of got lucky in this one. The captain then switched on the emergency generator power, which restored the flight instruments in the cockpit. The flight crew then notified the Albuquerque Air Route Traffic Control Center of the emergency via their transponder. So this is a common practice, actually, usually when you go through an emergency, and this is still common practice today, you put on a general emergency if you don't know exactly what's wrong. Uh, there are also 7700 right 7700 on the transponder you you there are also varying versions of the 7000 code that mean different things and you can look them up you're welcome to do so it's public knowledge but the 7700 is the most common something's wrong i don't know what's wrong help yep and as a matter of fact if you use flight radar 24 if you have a subscription you can you ask it you do to, not need a subscription you do not need it for this actually yeah but you can ask it to send you notifications whenever any airplane anywhere on earth that's being tracked by Flight Radar 24, Squawks 7700. Or 7600. Yes, or 7600, which, if you ever see that one, that one is hopefully doesn't happen. That one's a hijacking. Yes. Oof. I've never seen it come from Flight Radar, and one would hope that you never do, but it's always there and available. No, what's super fun? What's super fun is when you're plane spotting, and the plane that you're spotting squawks 7700. Yes. That's happened to us before. Yes, that happened once. Anyways, 4.45 p.m. This is all in mountain time now, by the way. The flight made radio contact with the Albuquerque approach controller, and a descent was cleared down to 8,000 feet. The flight was then provided with vectors for an approach to runway 26 at Albuquerque. Other systems, including flaps and slats, seemed to function normally during the approach. Impressive, given the hydraulic... Well, uh, that said, the landing gear had to be extended using the emergency extension lever, so they didn't function normally. But most things did. Do I function normally? No, me, I def- me neither. I definitely don't. Nope. The flight landed at 4.59 p.m., pretty miraculously, actually. Emergency services were ready when the aircraft landed and responded immediately, because they knew they were coming. An emergency evacuation was initiated via the slides once the aircraft came to a complete stop. Once passengers and crew were evacuated and the flight crew spoke with the cabin crew, the cabin crew informed them that there was a hole in the window at seat 17 hotel, 17H. So it definitely exploded. Where a male passenger had been sucked out. <gasps> oh, it's one of those. Yes. When you getting flashbacks out. to anything we've covered ever? And now I understand why you were mentioning those flights yesterday. Yeah. And was unfortunately lost while in flight. This being the only fatality in the incident. None of the cabin crew had witnessed this, however. That's weird. They weren't even they weren't even aware that that had happened until the passengers told them during the evacuation. Nobody in the crew had a clue well, about this until after they made which their Which is a little landing. concerning. Yes. A little. So yeah. supposedly well, the story goes and I don't want to dig too much into the details, but the passengers around him saw him get partially sucked out of the window, stuck there by his seatbelt 
before finally basically becoming dislodged and going entirely out. So, so seatbelts are useless. No. The seatbelts are useless <laughs> if you have it on too loosely. Yeah. According to the Wikipedia page, for a person of his stature, that seatbelt was eight inches too loose. Gotcha. So wear your damn seatbelt. And also yes. getting sucked completely out of, wind- of a pressurized vessel is pretty strong. Yes. And also, this is like, we'll put it this way, a three in however many people on Earth have ever traveled chance. Yeah. So I knew someone was thinking it, so I had to say it. It's basically (laughs) impossible per statistics. The last time this happened where a passenger or someone in the cabin was sucked out of the fuselage, the hole in the wall was 10 inches by 10 inches, Mm -hmm. you may recall. Mm-hmm. 10 inches by 10 inches? It's a very yes. tiny flight attendant. Yes. Okay. Um, it was not big. Mm-mm. And went, so I'm referring to Aloha Flight yep. 243, in case you, no one's caught up with that yet. When that happened, her being sucked partially out, she was like halfway out, created a vacuum, and it ripped off the roof of the cabin. Yeah. Gotcha. And they were just floating in air for a while. Yep. There were people that were just... This time, up there, the hole was a little. Open. The hole was a little bit bigger. Yeah. So this was sixteen inches by ten inches mm-hmm. ish. So still it, not huge. No, my dad. I don't think I'd fit through it. <laughs> I also don't know the uh, body dimensions of George Gardner. No, George Gardner is that mm-hmm. the person who got sucked out? Yep. Yeah. Did you read about that on the Wikipedia page? I read little bits and pieces, but I didn't read a whole Oh, whole I'm going to read that part because that's hella interesting. Okay. Do you want me to wait? Do you want me to continue? Because I've got just a little bit more. Go a little bit more while I pull it up. Okay. The cabin crew also noted that the mid portion of the cabin had their oxygen masks drop immediately after the explosion and the rapid decompression automatically. But it took almost three minutes for the rest of the cabin to drop, which is seemingly when the flight engineer manually released them. However, the rear left cabin didn't deploy at all. Oh, that's bad. That's horrible. Yeah. Some passengers managed to manually open the panel and retrieve the oxygen masks, uh, and others just moved. Because there were... I mean, (laughs) yes and no. (laughs) Well, yes and no. Yes. But there were a lot of open seats on this airplane, so yeah, people were just... A lot of them Yeah, let's just get up and move. Yeah. Yeah. That would be me. I'd be like, I'm not trying to get my out of there. My nails just got done. Right. Uh, <laughs> I go to a different seat. A blue-gray smoke had been present in the cabin during the whole incident and had gradually gotten worse over time toward the rear of the cabin anyway, so most of those people moving was probably oh, not yeah, a smoke. bad decision. I forgot um, there's smoke. Not yes. Yeah. Yeah, not just not a just decompression. decompression. Yeah, there's actually smoke in the cabin. <laughs> Four crew and 20 passengers were injured either by smoke inhalation or the evacuation, while eight crew and 95 were uninjured. 95 passengers were uninjured. Oh, wow. When the crew could see the damage to the airplane, (laughs) they were shocked to find much of the right engine was missing. Huh. And that there was a large area of damage to the right side of the fuselage where the debris had struck, including the window next to 17H. Okay, so regarding the occupant of seat 17H, efforts to pull the passenger back into the airplane by another passenger were unsuccessful, and the occupant of seat 17H was sucked entirely through the cabin window. 
The New Mexico State Police and local organizations searched extensively for the missing passenger, George F. Gardner of Beaumont, Texas. We have a couple of friends from Beaumont. Mm-hmm. Who was blown out of the window. Computer analysis was made of the possible falling trajectories, which narrowed the search pattern. However, the search effort was unsuccessful. I'm impressed they used computer analysis. I mean, I'm not saying anything about the 70s, but at the same time, this seems like I said one it, heck of a thing to figure out. Okay, you might note that yeah, yeah, yeah. it was unsuccessful. Yeah. A ranch hand later found a pair of sunglasses and a tobacco pipe while working on a ranch near Alamo, New Mexico. Ah, uh, yes, when you could smoke in the cabin. <laughs> Continue. He turned over the items to state police where the family of the missing passenger identified them as belonging to him. According to one source, two years after the incident, construction began on the Very Large Array Radio Telescope, mm-hmm. or VLA. While building the tracks north of US-60, the VLA track crew made a gruesome discovery by uncovering human remains. The Office of Medical Investigator was contacted and removed the remains to Albuquerque for identification and cause of death. After nearly a year... It was determined the skeletal remains found on the VLA North Arm was that of passenger 17H of Flight 27. The cause of death was fairly obvious. Uh, yeah, hitting the ground from high, uh, high up. Being sucked through shards of metal and window. And... Well, they, if, if it was skeletal, they wouldn't be able to know that. Yeah. But... No, it can leave marks on the bones depending on how deep the gashes go. Well, yeah. yes. But would they be able to t- determine that that was specifically the manner of death? Probably not. All they say is the cause of death was fairly obvious. The remains were to return to the family in Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he f- he f- fell from mm-hmm. 39,000 feet. Yeah. They're lucky they found him at all. I bet the yeah. bones were like super shattered. Oh, oh not, sure. they had to be. New Mexico is a very big place. The fact that they found anything <laughs> is pretty miraculous. So according to the report, the body was never found, but... The report came out before the body was found. So right. the body was found. Yes. That is it. That's all I have. By the way, that is all according to Wikipedia. Take it all with a grain of salt. Yep. Okay. This investigation was performed by the NTSB. Both black boxes were recovered from the aircraft, you know, because it landed. However. There's always a however. For some unknown reason. Another one of my favorite words. Unknown. Undetermined. Yep. For some undetermined reason, no meaningful data could be retrieved from the FDR. Cool. They tested the device, and nothing seemed to be wrong with it or the tape, but nothing was recorded. A ground test recorded data perfectly. Maintenance records showed that in July of the same year, the accelerometer was unreliable, so they replaced the FDR, and the accelerometer reading was still unreliable, so they assumed the test equipment was faulty and reinstalled the original FDR. (laughs) (laughs) It might have just been the FDR. (laughs) (laughs) Unknown. No idea. They were baffled. Anyway, the CBR was fine. Great. During the course of the investigation, investigators were made aware of two previous CF6 engine fan failures, both during test cell operation, and they seemed similar enough. Boy, did they have something else coming to them later. Oh, boy. So the first occurred at the American Airlines Tulsa Maintenance Base on November 15, 1972, after being removed due to a number of maintenance write-ups for high vibration. At the time of failure, they were testing for trim balance of the fan rotor and had it set on maximum continuous power with an N1 fan speed of 3,308 revolutions per minute or RPM, core speed of 9,200 RPM, and a fan vibration of 7.1 mils. That one I'm not so sure about. I don't know what they mean by that. I don't know. I don't know. After three minutes, a loud explosion was heard. Huh, it's almost like it was an uncontained engine failure. <laughs> and it was, found that yeah. the, it was found that the inlet and exhaust cone had separated from the engine and all of the fan blades had been released from the fan disc. 
all of them. Which is Jesus. a lot and very dangerous. Yeah. And note, I don't say broken from the fan disc. Released. I say released. Oh, God. Uh. There was considerable damage. It was investigated by American Airlines, Douglas, and General Electric, a.k.a. GE. They found that five of the 11 bolts used to attach the inlet bell mouth to the engine became fatigued over 15 to 50% of their cross sections. When those failed, all the other bolts failed in overload. They further determined that the disturbed airflow caused a quote-unquote dynamic activity to the fan blades. Dynamic activity. Let me get there. There was evidence of severe blade tip rub. So the okay. blade tips are yes. rubbing on the casing. Yes. That's Wait. not good. No. That you means they have expanded that. outward. These activities cause forward motion of the fan blades. Mm. So that takes a lot of force to do, by the way. Yes, it does. Because they're being stretched outward. What's pulling them forward? Back pressure. So it caused forward motion of the fan blades, shearing of axial retention hooks. So the things that are holding the fan blades to the fan disc. Right. Axial load against the rotor spinner. And finally, enough forward axial displacement of the blades for the tanks connecting the blades to the disc to shear. So all 38 blades yeeted themselves. Ugh. I well, hate that. that's fun. It's terrifying. It what? is terrifying. Once that happened, multiple blades burst through the containment casing. Yep. Ugh. And exited the engine. <laughs> Rapidly deconstructed. Yeeted. I, I technically used the term yeeted. The debris fr- that was ingested caused damage throughout the engine, as you might um, imagine. The second test cell failure was on January 12th, 1973. The testing was being done to investigate the cause of fan blade shingling. I don't know what that means. Which had been happening during the original production engine run. So this engine had not yet been installed in an aircraft, from what I understand. That could be an inaccurate assumption. They were testing while using special vibration instrumentation, a high-speed movie camera, a TV camera, sound recording equipment, and stroboscopic light equipment. All to help in studying the fan blade behavior. Honestly, super helpful given the circumstances. Yes. You have all of that. That's a good amount of analysis. Yes. Thank goodness. The failure occurred when attempting an acceleration to 3,983 N1 RPM, but disintegration occurred at 3,742 RPM. It all started with rubbing between the fan rotor and the casing, and the vibrations synchronized with the casing, so the vibrations fed each other. Great. Even better. Does anyone need a refresher on how vibrations can amplify each other? I mean, you just add, it's like adding positive to positive, right? Yeah. That's just just it. Okay, there we go. You have a wave, you add another wave, it makes a bigger wave. If they're in sync. So if the two crests... Yeah, if they're opposite, it won't matter. Then they actually cancel each other out. Right. But if they're synchronized, like in this instance, it go bad. they, They get bigger. Yes. This vibratory energy fed into the blade system and produced high blade tip forces, which pushed the blades out of the dovetail fitting. The entire fan rotor separated from the engine. The failure sequence was that the fan tips rubbed the abradable shroud, and the fan case vibration response was at half the fan speed in the direction of fan rotation. The vibration in the rotor synchronized with the stator so that the rubbing fed the rotor vibration, rapidly amplifying both vibrations, forcing the blades against the hooks in the dovetail until some blades left the disc, caused an imbalance, and the bolts attaching the number one bearing failed. So, pretty similar. Yes, just not all of them come out at once, just some which caused the massive buffeting. Some came out initially, and then all of them came out. So what was similar in both cases? All of them yeeted. Yes, eventually. Goodbye. 
so long, farewell. Yep. There's no blades left. Right. The blades moved forward under driving forces to shear their retainers and the rotor spinner and to overcome friction with the dovetail. The blades had a rocking motion during the forward displacement in both instances. Failure in the blade itself was only due to impact with surrounding structures after separation. The blades did not break upon, like, they didn't eat themselves because the blades broke. Right. Any fracture to the blades themselves happened when encountered. Yeah. Yeah. So they were whole for like half a second, not even. Disintegration occurred simultaneously with an acceleration of the engine. This is important. The fan blades were lost due to interaction between the vibration of the rotor and the fan case. Those are all the similarities. Yep. Examination of the wreckage and the previous reports proved that a mechanical failure alone could not have caused this type of blade release. To have all of the fan blades fail in such a manner, you need a high vibratory effect which overcomes the high centrifugal forces on the blade and instead increases the forward axial loading on the blades. Does anyone have any questions? I know that was a lot of technical. No. A lot of vibrations. A lot of vibrations. Boom. Yes. It goes, just like, just like Heather's Subaru. <laughs> and then it just went, Pah. Except hopefully her Subaru doesn't do that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I don't think the Subaru is going to do that. It's a reliable vehicle. It's just, it just needs new tires. It's also just a Subaru. Yeah. Subarus just do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Having owned one, yes. So the accident flight was in cruise flight at 39,000 feet when the fan assembly disintegrated. So what was the acceleration that started it, you might ask? And I asked. They were doing many a thing when this happened. Well, just before the disintegration, the captain engaged the autothrottle speed control, and he and the flight engineer were discussing the effect of pulling the N1 tachometer circuit breakers. Did they say that in the report? No, they said CBs, and then didn't provide me with a glossary, so it took me way too long to figure out that CBs are circuit, circuit breakers. Circuit breakers, yeah. And how that would affect the autothrottle speed control. After the airspeed stabilized, the flight engineer pulled the three circuit breakers, and the captain retarded the speed bug to decrease by five knots to see if the autothrottle would respond even with the circuit breakers pulled. And it did. He then disengaged the autothrottle, and then the failure occurred according to both crew members, and then the flight engineer reset the circuit breakers. Again, we have to base this a little bit based off the CVR and their statements, because we don't have an FDR to work with here. Right. So the order in which circuit breakers and things were turned off is a little subjective. Yep. Investigators emphasized how difficult it was to tie the two scenarios together. The crew essentially commanded a reduction in power, not an increase. But investigators were able to access the digital readout of the engine pressure ratios and fuel flow indicators at the time of failure. How did they do that with an FDR, you might ask? I also asked. But <laughs> Well, those values on the instruments froze when the number three generator failed. Mm. Uh, That's actually really useful. So the values that were on the panel were the values at the time of failure, which is really convenient. It is really convenient, and I feel like that's not normal. Is that not planned? No. No. Well, obviously not if they didn't know, but like... Usually you rely on the FDR, which just for some bizarre reason doesn't work. I don't know. So this happened to happen. Great. Fantastic. Lucky. I don't... Oh, no. Sorry. My brain... Never mind. That... My brain process that is something else but yeah now what you're saying makes sense so the values indicated that the engines were operating at an abnormally high power setting at the time of failure which correlates to what happened to the other two incidents of uncontained engine failure on the ground so what exactly might have caused the engines to be operating at an abnormally high power setting investigators said that possibly the captain inadvertently advanced the levers beyond the required settings when he was resetting the throttle levers without the n1 tachometer 
Or maybe the autothrottle system may still have been in operation and the target airspeed was at a higher setting than the actual airspeed, signaling a need for increased thrust. There was no evidence to support either of these speculations, so no positive determination was made. Basically, we don't know. Great. But it did happen. Something happened. Mm-hmm. To assist in determining other possible triggers, both GE and Douglas performed sound spectral analyses of the CVR. That's a fancy way of saying that they did a bunch of science on the sound and figured some stuff out. Yep. And then contradicted each other. Yep. Also, yep. <laughs> so GE's analysis labeled time zero as when the flight engineer was wondering about pulling the N1 tachometer circuit breakers, at which time the number three engine was at 97% N1, which is normal for cruise flight. 24 seconds later, it increased to 100%, and the other two engines followed. This was determined to be a general increase in engine power due to the autothrottle, because they all three moved up together. Between 31 and 44 seconds, the number three engine speed oscillated randomly between 94 and 100%, while the other two remained stable. The explosion occurred at 48 seconds, when the number three engine speed was at 99%, and accelerated to almost 110%, after which the engine sound was no longer detectable. Great. The other two engines accelerated to 109.5% and 107% and remained at that setting for 26 seconds. This analysis suggests that the autothrottle system was still working, but did not have the thrust-limiting feature. And it also could mean that the pilot could have set the throttles manually beyond the required thrust position, though he did not testify to that. One theory from this spectral analysis was that the inner liner had worked loose and disrupted airflow into the fan, which initiated the failure. The acceleration rate of 266 revolutions per minute per second, or RPMs per second, between the time of explosion and the loss of sound supports this theory. Basically, there was a limited airflow, and that's what initiated the failure. This theory was supported by the fact that GE actually allegedly found two separate and different explosive sounds very close together, which accounts for the missing piece of inlet duct acoustic liner tearing loose and allowing the fan to accelerate suddenly as a result of airflow disruption. But that is discounted because the fracture edge was torn in shear stress, not in tension, which is more supported by it being sheared by fragments of the disintegrating fan and not torn loose by the fan blade release. I know that was a lot of words. Was it was a lot, lot of words. <laughs> but yes, I understood what that meant. Basically, they thought this thing, but the, the, the evidence doesn't support it. Right. Douglas counters the dual explosion with their own sound spectrum analysis, which shows the major portion of acoustic energy occurring in the first fifth of a second, or 200 milliseconds, and was the only time of sustained high-level sound in the first 10 seconds of failure, meaning this was not a separate explosive sound. They go on to speculate more things, but I'm not really going to dig into speculation too much. It failed. It failed. One way or another, it failed. They found that there were some similarities to previous incidents, and they had to fix these problems. So, investigators also in the realm of speculation, wonder what this means for certification. Mm -hmm. Because nothing was out of the flight envelope and structural requirements of the aircraft. Right. Which is kind of scary. Everything was technically within certification. Right. So do we need to be stricter with certification requirements? One yes. might say yes. Always. Yes. It was a DC-10, after all. And this was during the volatile years when the DC-10 made a really bad name for itself. So, that's all I have. Thank God it's not the 70s anymore. All <laughs> right. Dude. Yeah. Between all the serial killers and <laughs> cars didn't have seat belts. And people smoking everywhere. <laughs> in airplanes. For, and airplanes were just notoriously maybe a lot less reliable than they are now. 
Maybe. That being said, um, an uncontained engine failure did kill a single passenger in 2018. We covered that, by the way. Yes. Southwest Airlines something, something, something. That has also been corrected. Yes. Well, because to be honest with you, I mean, we can we can make more ways to check on these things to make sure they don't happen, but fatigue still happens and sometimes it's not detectable and eventually it shatters and stuff happens. No matter what, there's going to be human error. Right. Yep. But there is also so many more ways to prevent fatigue failures in particular, mechanical fatigue failures. Yes. Yep. Cuz science. Science. The science that I studied a lot of. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a break. Let's take a break. And we're going to come back with all the normal stuff. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, we're back. I'm going to do all the normal stuff. There are findings, there are recommendations, and there's a probable cause. Huzzah! Huzzah! I think it's been a while since we've had, like, all three. (laughs) Not really. There's been a few. But this one's, like, I don't know, pretty normal. We're in our comfort zone. Yes, we are in comfort zone. This... way to my comfort zone. zone. You know who's not in their comfort zone? The passenger in 17H. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out he's in the death zone. Sad. This being a 1970s report, the findings are all very short. So I'm just gonna... Read them. Blow through them? <laughs> yeah. Finding one, the crew was qualified and certificated. Good job. Because I got to use that word. Certificated? Certificated. Because I'm certified pretty, is also a I'm word and means the same pretty thing. Pretty sure someone made that word up. And we still use it. It's in the dictionary. We also have certified, which is the same thing. Anyways. Two, the aircraft was certificated. Thank you. They wanted to use that word again. Yes. And apparently maintained properly. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, it was. This was a manufacturing problem, really. I have questions about the FDR. A design and manufacturing. There is that. Yes. Remember this airplane. (laughs) Remember, this airplane was still new, though. Like, for that to be happening, for that to be happening means it was a design problem. They don't know what the problem was because it worked just fine. Great. Except it didn't. (laughs) And the airplane was new. And it turned out a lot of things were that way on the DC-10, i.e. cargo doors. (laughs) I.e. the entirety of the hydraulic system I. being e. connected to each other. I.e. the fan blades. I.e. the engine. I.e. the entire goddamn airplane. They really... <laughs> they really should have done some more testing um, before they were like, look, a new airplane. All I have to say is <laughs> Douglas rushed this airplane to compete with the L-1011 and no, it really shows. <laughs> Just like a certain... Uh, 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 Air- and- Airplane airplane manufacturer that may or may not also be Douglas because it was also cough cough McDonald Douglas at one point. Anyways, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't prematurely release aircraft in competition with other aircraft manufacturers. Maybe that's but a horrible that's how idea. the industry works. That's not a that's good how thing. People die. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> that's why we're still here. <laughs> is, is that what we call job security? I don't know. Unfortunate. Job security. Uh, How unfortunate. Anyways, 
They found that about 36 seconds before the initial explosion, the flight crew pulled the N1 tachometer circuit breakers to determine how this disconnection would affect the automatic throttle system's operation. It didn't. The system circuitry is such that with the circuit breakers pulled, the auto throttle system's N1 limiting authority is canceled. So, okay, that wasn't brought up in the analysis. That would be why. Because then the auto throttle can run as high as it wants. Oh, so, and then that would jostle the that's, thing, and that was that's the chain why. reaction. God. I was like, I wish I'd... But why would that make a difference? That's why it makes a difference. Okay. And that's how we can kind of assume that the failure happened before the circuit breakers were reset. Yes. They found that if the N1 circuit breaker were disengaged with the auto throttle system in use, the throttle could advance beyond normal authority limits. They found that the flight crew was, in effect, performing an untested failures analysis on the auto throttle system. In flight! Yeah, they were testing something that had never been tested. Maybe don't do that. Also, maybe test it in the first place. (laughs) They found that at the time of the failure, the three engines were operating at a power setting above the specified normal operation, but below the approved maximum continuous operating limits of the engine. So like we said, it's still within the operating limits of the engine. So why should it fail? It shouldn't. Right. They found that there was no evidence of any failure or malfunction within the engine which would have caused the fan disintegration. So they really couldn't figure it out. They found that 32 of the 38 fan blades exited in a forward direction out of their fan disc slots. They found that the damage to the number three engine, which resulted from the rubbing of the fan blades tips and the exiting of the fan blades, was similar to the damage found in the two test cell engine failures, the triggering mechanism of which was interaction between the fan rotor and the fan case during resonance between the two at a multi-wave vibratory mode. They found that a portion of the inlet duct inner liner was missing from the duct. A piece of this liner was found lodged against the fan outlet guide vanes. They found that fragments of the number three engine fan assembly penetrated the fuselage, the number one and three engine nacelles in the right wing area, Cabin window was struck by a fragment and separated from the aircraft. No, really. They found that as a result of the loss of a cabin window and a cabin decompression, a passenger was forced out of the window and was lost, to put it simply. They found that damage to the wiring in the number three engine nacelle caused a partial electrical power loss, which affected various aircraft systems. And the last one, we went through these pretty quick. They found that the electrical power could have been restored to all systems through completion of the emergency checklist procedures, which supposedly they did not do. However, they did activate the generators and eventually they got power back, so it didn't matter. I argue their CRM still wasn't necessarily terrible. They actually did things pretty well. But this was before Pre-CRM, but honestly, it worked out pretty well. The flight engineer noticed a lot of things and helped with a lot of that, as is his job. He is there to look at indications and fire warnings and decompression warnings and activate things that need to be activated and tell the captain things and he needs to tell to indicate what's happening and ultimately they made a safe landing so huzzah huzzah the probable cause verbatim as always the national transportation safety board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the disintegration of the number three engine fan assembly as a result of an interaction between the fan blade tips and the fan case The fan tip rub condition was caused by the acceleration of the engine to an abnormally high fan speed, which initiated a multi-wave vibratory response within the fan section of the engine. 
The precise reason or reasons for the acceleration and the onset of the destructive vibration could not be determined conclusively. Well, then. It ended up not being the cause or major cause for UA-232. However, I would say they should have looked a little closer at the engine still. Just a little closer. But what happened with UA-232 was different. Yes. So. I would also say, given that they didn't have a flight data recorder, I think they did an incredible job. Yes. Yeah, they did. They really yep. did. There's a lot that there's no way they could have found out allegedly, and they did. So mm-hmm. good for them, because yep. that's a lot of science and math that my brain can and no longer work. support. <laughs> like, right. they'd have to do actual physical, like, it's not like now where we have, like, computer-generated things that we can do. They had actually had to put a thing do all of that work and multiple tests on an actual engine to figure out that that's what would happen. You know those crazy people who were like standing on stools and ladders doing calculations on a whiteboard? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what they were doing. they were doing. Yeah. 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 I took an entire class on vibration and dynamics. And yep. I, how I passed that is still beyond me. It's quite the complicated thing to understand. Mathematically, it is absolutely nuts. I don't math. Me neither. I should show you pictures from... I also don't English. That either. I should show you pictures from my vibration class notes. Oh my God. I'm good. It's scary. <laughs> I, didn't take, I didn't take vibrations for a reason. I didn't become an engineer for a reason. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> so I prefaced that there's a recommendation section, and there is, but it is a little different. And I'm going to read the whole thing verbatim because it's just a few paragraphs. But it doesn't read like recommendations because they actually explain what they did with these recommendations, which is interesting. So verbatim from the report, quote, As a result of this accident, the safety board submitted nine recommendations to the FAA. Three of these recommendations pertain to the inspection and maintenance of the digital flight data recorders, and five concern the passenger and portable oxygen systems installed in the DC-10. The final recommendation pertains to assessment of aircraft damage by flight crews during in-flight emergencies. Note how none of them are about the engine. Because of the prompt and effective actions taken by the FAA, General Electric, Douglas Aircraft Company, and airlines flying the DC-10, no recommendations were necessary concerning the engine installation. Oh, so they fixed it. Immediately following the accident, the FAA issued a telegraphic airworthiness directive. They sent everybody an AD. Applicable to all DC-10 aircraft to require inspection of the engine nose cowl mounting integrity and to correct any possible deficiencies in that area. Also, it was recognized early that fan tip rub was a necessary condition in the sequence of events that brought about the loss of the fan blades. As a preventative measure against the recurrence of this type of condition, the fan blade tip-to-shroud clearances were increased. Further, as a backup for the possibility of blade tip rub, even after the tip clearance was modified, an extensive development, testing, and production program was established to increase the capabilities of the blade retention devices. One of the primary retaining devices has been redesigned to provide each blade with a rearward retaining capability of 60,000 pounds as compared to the 18,000 pounds capability of the accident engine. These modified blade retaining devices have now been incorporated in all of the in-service engines. So to put that in um, a little bit of simpler terms, previously the retainage hooks, the things that were keeping the fan Mm -hmm. blades in the fan disc, were almost exclusively only working against the centrifugal forces of a rapidly spinning blade. Right. 
any forward or backwards motion, they didn't have a whole lot of right. resistance the, against. The motions that they weren't supposed to do, but somehow could, i.e. So pressure. they increased the strength of that in the forward and backwards directions. Yep. So that that doesn't happen. Right. They more than tripled it, which is... Good. Great. <laughs> One would say. Finally. With regard to the flight crews performing an untested failure analysis of the autothrottle slash speed control system, the safety board stresses that the operator and the pilot in command should be fully cognizant of their operational responsibilities to conduct the flight in a professional manner and not to conduct experiments to aircraft systems in which they have not received specific training or instruction. Well, yes, I agree with that. This is why they usually give them manuals that tell them how to troubleshoot different issues. And also, these days, of course, you can just call up the airline's maintenance anytime over the radio or anything and just say, hey, we have this issue. What do we do? This was definitely not an issue that was worth trying to diagnose at 39,000 feet in cruise flight for no particular reason while the airplane was operating just fine. Yeah. That said, that happening when the airplane was in its... Mm, Operating limits shouldn't have happened anyways just because the flight crew was fiddling with some things, which, don't get me wrong. Don't fiddle with things. I mean, it's their job to fiddle with things. Not as much as maintenance, but in fiddling with things, the airplane did something it wasn't supposed to do. Well, it did something it could do and was designed to do, but not that it should have done. Still within operating limits and still failed. So that still speaks to a design problem and not necessarily a flight crew problem. I just think it's interesting that they brought that up. And honestly, this was kind of the first hint of, like, CRM when it came to reports. I feel like before this, it's not necessarily that they didn't talk about, like, crew conduct or anything. But this specifically hints at basically professionalism in the cockpit and following your duties and your responsibilities, which, to that end, is CRM. So, that is all. That is it. It was impactful. It was quite the dramatic incident. Thanks, Matt, for recommending dramatic things. Yes. Being the drama. Yes. But I like we've gotten to dig out some interesting incidents of late that yes. uh, even I haven't really necessarily known about, but are quite dramatic and interesting. Interesting to talk about. So that's all. All right. Well, thank you for listening to our episode. That was Nation Air. Close. National Airlines. <laughs> that one. I didn't know if you were going to like sneeze or something. <laughs> nope. nope. Not that. But yes, National Airlines. I don't know the flight number. Oh, that's not right. 25? Oh, I was going to... No. 27. By the way, <laughs> if you wanted to... 20, 23. If you wanted to see the picture of the candy corn. It's oh, basically okay. a candy corn. Candy corn? It, that looks very oh. 70s. Yes, it It is very 70s. I didn't see the black from that angle. Yeah. It's very pinstriped. 70s with the bare metal belly. Thanks for joining us again, Heather. Yeah, yes, of thanks. Course. <laughs> always, always a joy to have you along for the ride. Yes. Solving insane Rubik's cubes in the background. Yes. So that also means you know what time it is. You got to go to Patreon and give us all your money. <laughs> you really need to stop <laughs> saying that. It's really, it's not all your money. It's very reasonable, I promise. It is. But if I say all your money and then they go on Patreon and see how cheap it is, then it's like, oh yeah, that's, yeah. And if I you sign totally up, do. you don't have to. It's a joke. Okay, people, but give me a break. But if you want to give me all your money, I don't want you to go broke. Please don't go broke. Someone complained go. that we don't have a higher tier than $20 a month. What? Yeah. Why? 
Who? I don't know what we would like, offer. If you want to pay more, then donate. <laughs> the you guy can donate. I just don't the know. The guy what... who still owes us a helicopter ride. What? Oh, well, Someone oh, owes you a helicopter. But he That's fine. We like don't... a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, and he and my dad are not on the best of terms. Granted, I'm also not on the best of terms with my dad now. So whatever. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you can't afford to give us money, which, by the way, it's okay. It's if, totally if fine. You can't do it. Just, Absolutely it's okay. Fine. I can't afford to give us money. There's a lot of people <laughs> who are like, if I was in a different situation or... We totally understand. I yeah, get it. You're good. We, it's a joke. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you can always like give us a review online somewhere. Or tell a friend. Or tell a friend or send it to somebody you think would like it. Do, do all the things. Thanks. And like you can buy some merch and you don't have to buy expensive merch. You can buy one of the cheaper merch. You can buy like the little the, things. The water bottles, the insulated water bottles are really nice. They're nice. And they're not super expensive. The stickers so. are nice too. They are. Those, stickers are also nice. Those water bottles, while they get dented and things, they are some of the best water bottles I've ever had. Like they. It keeps stuff seri- super cold. Oh, seriously. Like my water bottles would stay cold for like three days straight. Yeah. There's ice in there. Ice stays in there for a long time. I loved that water bottle. I still have it. I haven't cleaned it out. The only problem that I had with it was that it was small, which yeah, is why I use the past my... tense because I don't use it anymore because I have a giant water bottle. Yeah, that's that's my <laughs> issue with it. So I broke my big water bottle, and so I was using my hard landings one, uh-huh. and I'd have to fill it up four or five times. Oh yeah, easily. Oh, to I can drink it. I can drink the whole thing like at once, and then fill it, and probably drink another half, and then have to refill it. And I would do that like three or four times in a day. Yeah. Like it, it just, it's sizable enough for some people. When you're used to drinking half a gallon plus. Right. (laughs) It's a lot of times to fill up your water. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of water in that regard, but I mean, it wasn't. It's a good travel water bottle. It is. It's not actually that little of a water bottle. It's just that it. It's just that y'all drink a lot of water and I don't. It's a perfect size for me. Thank you. Good for you. It's 22 ounces, I believe. Yes. It's fantastic. And, uh. When you drink half a gallon of water, that's 64 ounces of water. I filled this before we started recording. Yeah, but you're supposed what to drink hell? that amount of water. That's what I do. You scare me. No. That's what you should do. It's doing. necessary. Yes. It's the only reason why me, who is not really a healthy human being, maintains being a healthy human being. <laughs> Ish. Mm-hmm. I still eat like so. Oh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, me too. Okay. Go, right. get a, go get yourself a water bottle. Get yourself a go water hydrate. bottle. Go hydrate. Or hydrate or dehydrate. Or a keychain. Go hydrate. Go take your meds. Yes. Please take your meds. I took my meds today, guys. Good job. Fold the laundry. Put it away. (laughs) Why'd you gotta go say that? Because just like us, there are other people out there slacking. (laughs) It's your turn to fold the laundry. I'm aware that we too are slacking. Slack a lacking. I hate laundry (laughs) so much. I love putting laundry in the machines. Actually, putting them away takes uh, 28 business days. Thank you. <laughs> I've just been, when I'm not at home, I have to be at home at the right time yes. to put my laundry away. Yes. Because if not, it takes me the whole week to find time to put laundry. Like many things that aren't enjoyable life, I have to be in the mood to want to put laundry away. Like, I, I need to do that when I get home. Is f- And it doesn't even- We're getting into post-episode territory. Let's <laughs> All right. cut this off. Sorry. That's Sorry. Okay. Fair. Anyways. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, 
please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.